This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here is where it all starts. From the little ones learning, to the high-performance athletes leading. Here we go to play, to practice, to progress. Here is where communities in the nation come together, to compete, to win, and to belong. Here we go to the next level, then on to the world stage. This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here we go. Visit sportirelandcampus.ie to be a part of it. Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, a short history of Russia, the misalliance between Nazis and leading members of the German nobility, the story of a French family over three centuries, a history of different religions told through their buildings, and finally, to end the show, a story of madness, tragic passion, and the curse of inheritance. Last week we discussed the life and work of the Roman Emperor Hadrian and we discovered that there was more to him than the building of the famous wall. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a short history of Russia. Russia is a country with no natural borders and no true central identity. And yet it is one of the most powerful nations on earth, a master game player on the global stage with a rich history of war and peace, poets and revolutionaries. And a new book takes us on a tour of the world's most misunderstood nation. The book is called A Short History of Russia from the Pagans to Putin. It's published in hardback by Ebury Press and costs around 13 euro. The author is Mark Galliotti. And Mark, you're very welcome to the show tonight. It's good to be here. So I suppose the big question is how did you manage to approach the challenge of distilling a thousand years of Russian history into a few hundred pages. Ah, well, yes, that was the challenge. And that was also actually the heartbreaking fun, because obviously there was so much that I couldn't talk about. Really, what I ended up doing was two things. One is almost trying to think of Russia as a character in novel itself. So trying to talk about actually how, as it were, this nation grew and developed. Unfortunately, it's not quite like an individual life story because there's no death at the end except to the Soviet Union. But it was in terms of actually putting Russia center stage. And secondly, I mean, I will be honest, trying to kind of pluck what for me were were the best, the most interesting stories, the ones that weren't just fun to read and write, but also best, I think, illustrated this country's trajectory. And is there anything you regret having to cut out? Oh, gosh. I mean, that in itself would, would, would be a whole book in its own right. I mean, I think two things. One is, you know, I'm, I'm still enough of a, of a proper historian to regret sometimes that, yes, you have to end up cutting corners and oversimplifying grand debates. And I think the other thing is, I, I mean, I had to obviously to find an organizing principle. I had to focus quite a bit on czars and general secretaries, the rulers. And obviously you talk about what's changing in society and economy and culture at the same time. But in some ways, it would have been quite fun. I, I, I could have written the same book, but from the perspective of, shall we say, the peasant going through to the worker. And obviously, it would have told the same story, but from a very different vantage point. Not having enough, you might say, of the peasant's vantage points is probably my one big regret. Every country has its own national mythology, but it seems that mythology is particularly important for Russians. And it's something that links the different sections of the book. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that's really fascinating because obviously we see it at the moment. You know, Vladimir Putin is very much engaged in an exceedingly deliberate and methodical attempt to, to cherry pick through Russia's history for the bits that, that suit his narrative about the fact that A, Russia is an exceptional power with a unique mission in the world, and B, that essentially it is also constantly at risk. The outside world is intrinsically hostile, and that's why Russians need to be disciplined, need to hold together. That's why they need an authoritative leader like, well, like him. So obviously at the moment there, there is a big effort to, I won't say um, totally fictionalize history, but certainly distort it. But the interesting thing is precisely when one goes back all the way to the very beginning of what we might begin to think of as Russia as a state, this has been the case. The very beginning, essentially, Slavic tribes were conquered by adventurers who are coming, Vikings, essentially, who are coming from Scandinavia. And that was very, very quickly turned into a wonderful folk story that says, actually, it was the Slavs themselves who said, you know, our land is rich, but there is no order. Come and rule over us. So right at the beginning, a thousand years ago, they were already, in a way, spinning a story that turned conquest into actually an, an act of agency by the Russians themselves. And so this is something that we've seen all, all through people from above and below making their own stories to try and bring some kind of identity to their country. And talk to me about the, the fact that it is this nation of contrasts as well, because it's it has this rich literature, it has this rich history, it has these major global engagements as well, the wars, conflicts, its its role in, in global history as well, that it's very much a, a study of contrasts as well. It is. And I mean, I think this is, and obviously this is part of why I happen to be a total Russia enthusiast in case that doesn't come across. And it's so fascinating because for me, the outside world tends to very, very quickly pick its own picture of Russia. I mean, I don't know, when, when I was bringing students back when I was, for example, a professor at New York University, I would bring students over for, to, 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 to Moscow for a sort of two week uh, intensive study trip. These were graduate students. You know, they, they, they weren't just simply fresh-faced undergrads. And I'd always ask them in advance, you know, what are you expecting? Give me your one word, one phrase anticipations. And it was really fascinating how it tended to default into the old tropes of the spy movies. They were expecting somewhere, and this was, you know, I mean, a few years back, they were expecting somewhere that was going to be grey and shadowy and dour. And then they'd arrive in Moscow, which is this phenomenally vibrant, genuinely 24-7 city. But frankly, in some ways, out New York's New York. And in many ways, they, they were blown away. And I think th this, is, this is one of the fascinating things. This is a country that stretches across half the globe. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that it has everything from, you know, deserts to Arctic wastes, everything from the highest technology through to you know, rural poverty that, frankly, was almost, a, well, apart from a few little sort of gigaws and gimmicks, is 50 years out of date, shall we say. Um, but that's, that's the nature of this sprawling country. And again, it raises one of these key questions is how do you rule a country like this? How do you rule a country that's not just so physically big, but culturally, mentally big? President Putin, we know, loves to read history and he loves to, I think, uh, apply history in, in, in whatever way works best for him. If he read your book, what do you think he would make of it? 
Well, I mean, I, I suspect he wouldn't be a great fan because here's the thing. We know that, as you say, Putin reads history. He's not a very good historian. He often doesn't really understand properly the, the parallels he draws. So, I mean, I, I, I imagine that on the one hand, I mean, hopefully he, he will see that I'm, I'm quite an optimist and enthusiast. Russia's day has not gone, in my opinion. But at the same time, I, th I think he would he would say, you know, who is this smart-assed foreigner who's trying to tell Russians about Russia's own history? I don't think he'd be impressed. I'm not, alas, expecting this particular book to get a Russian translation any day soon. Very good. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion. Uh, the book is called A Short History of Russia from the Pagans to Putin. It's published in hardback by Ebury Press and costs around €13. Euro. The author is Mark Galliotti. And Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was my great pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In the mountain of books that have been written about the Third Reich, surprisingly little has been said about the role played by the German nobility in the Nazis' rise to power. Well, this all changes with the publication of Nazis and Nobles, The History of a Misalliance. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs £30 sterling, so about €35. Euro. The author is Stephen Malinowski. And Stephen, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Hello. It is really an unlikely alliance, wasn't it, between the Nazis and the and the aristocracy? Well, it very much is for uh, social and cultural reasons, because the two groups, if we consider them to be groups, are rather on the extreme poles and extremes of the German society. Uh, the Nazis rather being a middle class, lower middle class proletarian peasant movement and the nobility being the nobility. And talk to me about the, the role they played. Well, first of all, I suppose, in what position were, were the nobility in after the First World War? They seem to have been pretty weak and weren't able to stop the revolution happening in Germany in 1918. I mean, the German nobility, like in, other, uh, like in any other European country, had something of a diminishing power, like in all industrial states during the industrialization of the 19th century. But unlike uh, other countries in Western Europe, uh, it had in the Kaiserreich in the German Empire, that is until 1918, until the end of the First World War, uh, guarded and, and, and saved uh, strong strongholds of power and power positions in certain sectors of society, uh, mostly and most importantly um, in the officer corps of the German army, in diplomacy, uh, in the leadership of the state, in the high bureaucracy, but also in the landed estates. Um, so it still is, in 1918, an extremely powerful minority corresponding to roughly 0.2% um, of the German society. And this 0.2% of the German society would still be running like 80-90% um, of the highest officer ranks, for example. And, of course, this... Um, can be compared to other examples, most famously perhaps the French Revolution, abolishing, uh, abolishing the nobility uh, does not practically mean that the people are disappearing. They are still there, and unlike in the Russian uh, Revolution, they are neither beheaded nor really expropriated. So these people are still around in the Republic and um, present very much a challenge to the democracy, to the young and fragile democracy in Germany after 1918. So why did the majority of the nobility then support the Nazis and oppose the Weimar Republic? Was it a means to an end, that a way of getting rid of, of Weimar, or was there something else that attracted them to it? 
I mean, getting rid of Weimar and of the democracy and of parliamentarism is very much a common ground of the entire German extreme right, uh, in which the nobility plays a small but very important part. Um, hating the republic, hating democracy, hating the parliament, hating Democrats, socialists, communists, Bolsheviks, but also feminism, modern art, modern theater, uh, big cities, urban culture, nightclubs. Uh, in one word, um, 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 modernity, as it is defined in the 1920s, and very importantly, the hatred against Jews. Um, so anti-Semitism playing the role as a figure in which uh, the entire modernity democracy is encompassed, modern press, modern media, all of this is something which most, not all of them, of course, most of the noblemen in Germany, uh, of the German nobility, are, are, are despising um, and hating, mostly in Prussia, so there would be regional differences. The Catholics in the south and in the west of Germany have slightly different uh, alliances and sensibilities than the Prussians, but the most important group is the Protestant Prussian nobility, which uh, very, very uh, sharply opposes the, re uh, the regime, the republic, and which ends up by 1930, 31, 32, that is the crucial end years, ending years of the, of the Weimar Republic, by building an unstable alliance with, which, uh, with what is then the most uh, dynamic part of the extreme right, which are the, is the Nazi movement. So how long was it then before these same aristocrats became disillusioned with the Nazis and Nazi Germany? I mean, it starts out pretty quickly after 1933, 34, to understand that the so-called taming concept, which was an idea uh, in the larger concept of the German elites to use uh, the Nazi movement like a horse or like a Trojan horse in order to enter the walls of the Republic and to break it from the inside, when this concept fails, and it, quite, it fails very early by spring 1933, the disillusionment uh, begins, and then we would have to dif differentiate almost uh, at a level of biographies. There are, of course, a lot of beneficiaries and profite <laughs> profiteers from the regime, that is, young men who can re-enter uh, the always enlarged um, army, the German Wehrmacht, or who can... Um, go for new settlements in the, in the, in the, in the, in the conquered uh, eastern territories after 1939, uh, so the attack on Poland, and then later the attack on the Soviet Union in 41, leading to a settlement program and providing new, uh, well, emerging, emerging markets, as economists today would say, these are um, opportunities that many, many uh, noblemen try to seize. Um, so this is it's a very... Um, incoherent picture that you get where collaboration on the on the one hand, disillusionment on the other hand, and then for a third and very small minority within the nobility, resistance comes out, which then uh, ends or culminates in the famous bomb plot of Count Stauffenberg on the 20th of July 1944, the attempt which almost killed Hitler in his military uh, uh, centre in, in eastern Prussia. And there you can see how the misalliance had very much become soured. And uh, was it as much the aristocrats realising that their way of life and that their world was coming to an end? I think there is a growing, there was a growing um, awareness that the idea of Volksgemeinschaft, uh, the people's community, which is the, one of the keywords in the Nazi uh, um, um, ideology, 
and, and partly practice that is overcoming um, class divisions and forming a new community of the people on racial and racist groundings did not really offer a place for nobility because nobility by definition means standing out of the crowd and you can't at the same time be part of the crowd and stand out of the crowd. So either you are special or you are not. And combining the two uh, turned out to be impossible. And the fall of the Prussian nobility in 1945 is extremely deep and is even deeper than in 1918, which has to do with losing the lands uh, in the eastern and, and the key parts of, of what once was uh, Prussia and eastern Prussia. So this gets, gets lost. And from that point on, um, 1945, the German nobility uh, would never be what it once had been before. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining me tonight to talk about this misalliance between the Nazis and the nobles. The book is called Nazis and Nobles, The History of a Misalliance. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press, costs about €35. The author is Stephen Malinowski. And Stephen, uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History with me, Patrick Gagan. A new book provides an innovative history of deep social and economic changes in France, told through the story of a single extended family across five generations. The book is called An Infinite History. The Story of a Family in France Over Three Centuries. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs £30 sterling, so about €35. The author is Emma Rothschild. And Emma, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Very nice to be here. What prompted you to explore, I suppose, this particular family, this particular part of France, and to, I suppose, uncover so much about uh, what was going on in France during this period through this study? It started with complete accident really. I I, I was in the archives in this small town in the centre of France called Angoulême for a completely different reason to do with with economic history, really. And I saw a document that an illiterate woman had sworn to in the middle of the 18th century. And she she had heard a rumour that her late husband, who was a carpenter, had emigrated to the West Indies and had bought himself some slaves and then had died on the way home. And she wanted to know what had happened to his fortune and his slaves. So this was intriguing enough. And then I found another document a few weeks from a few weeks later. This was a prenuptial contract that her daughter had signed. She was getting married to the son of a tailor in the town. And it was a perfectly normal prenup by the standards of the time. But I turned it over and 83 people had signed it, which was really extraordinary. So I just got intrigued by this family and I started to find out more about them, more about the people who'd signed the marriage contract. And I I didn't know where the project was going. But after about two years, I woke up one morning and thought, I think this is a book. So it was chance. And I think it, the result is, is is pretty spectacular. And what's interesting is by looking at Mary Amar, by looking at, you know, her family, her networks, the connections and, and the family connections all the way down to, I think it's her great, great granddaughter, that we get a real sense of, 
of how the community uh, lived during this time, a period of where you had the French Revolution, where you have all of these dramatic events happening. And then this is a part, a region of France that probably uh, wasn't featuring much in those larger studies, but we're getting to see uh, all these very interesting things that are happening. Yes, exactly. That that was the point, really, to, to look at huge political events like the French Revolution or the revolutions of the 19th century and the economic transformation and try to see what it meant to people who lived through it day by day without being famous themselves at all. And, and I was also interested in the extent to which the outside world really affected even a very, very provincial um, part of Europe. I mean, it wasn't just that Marie's husband had um, gone as, as an indentured servant so far away, but um, there were, I, I discovered that in this small town, there were quite a few people who were themselves former slaves who'd been brought back to France and, and were living there. I discovered that this small inland town was, even in the 18th century, a profoundly European town. I mean, I was looking at uh, the, uh, the, the, the tiny parish with a few hundred people where the family lived, and I saw there was, uh, th- there was someone who'd been buried there who was described as the Irish priest, the, the, um, the confessor of the English prisoners. There were people from, um, from Italy. There, were, there, there was someone who was working for the Ottoman emperor, um, as he described it. So it was, it, 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 it was much less isolated than uh, provincial life is supposed to be. And even for people who never traveled themselves, they had neighbours who'd come from far away. And it almost reads like a 19th century novel, the way they have these wonderful, wonderfully interlocking stories. And it is a, a series of stories in this book, you know, almost a hundred. I wanted to tell it in the form of stories because one of the reasons I wrote a book was that I wanted to know what happened, what, what happened next. To, to these these people, and the the nicest thing anyone has said to me about the book was um, um, one of my very old friends who who wrote to me that she just finished it. She read it one of some of the stories in the bath every night, and she got to the end and she wanted to know what I really thought about the intimate life of one of the characters. And you know that's the sort of thing that you you never know as a historian. If I was the novelist, I would have started with an idea about intimate lives and character, and, uh, and historians don't know this. But, but certainly, I hope that the, there is a sense of, of narrative over time. And you know, even people who weren't at all famous had a lot of adventures and dramas in their lives, which I, which I try to talk about. You suggest that perhaps it's a story that doesn't end or, you know, that when, you, when you're looking at the modern lives section that uh, it's, it's perhaps a story that, that, that continues. It, it's a story that continues because there are descendants of this family who are still alive. And one reason I wanted to end in the early 20th century was to be absolutely sure that 
no one would read the book whose own parents were were mentioned in it. And I, I've I've felt a, 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 an awkward relationship between history, the kind of history that I do or that history teachers teach, and um, and the family history of of ancestry or genealogy. So the, in, in that sense, um, it's infinite. It's infinite in in the sense that I even now I keep finding more bits and pieces of information about people in the story from this family and, and others. But it's related to to you know, the technologies of of history because there's so much material online now. So much is is digitized and what you can look at online changes every day so i can look at a a family history website or a or a public archive website and there'll be things there which weren't there yesterday so in that sense i could i could spend the rest of my life on on this project Brilliant. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's always a sign of a good historical project that it it spins off into other things, and that the story is is one that you can keep with for many many years and and uncover many many more interesting things. I, I actually, I I hope I'm not going to live with this family for the rest of my life, even though I um um uh, I can't resist pursuing new trails that arrive, which do arrive all the time. Very good. Well, congratulations. The book is called An Infinite History, the story of a family in France over three centuries. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author, Emma Rothschild. And Emma, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks very much. Nice talking to you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book looks at the history of the church through its buildings, allowing us to establish a tangible connection to the lives of the people involved in some of the key moments and movements that shaped its history. The book is called A History of the Church Through Its Buildings, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. It costs £30 sterling, so about €35. The author is Alan Doig. And Alan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Delighted to be here. It seems that you had a, a wonderful uh, journey around the world in pre-COVID times uh, to research this book and uh, to visit very many different types of churches and take in uh, a lot of different religions. Yes, I had a wonderful time researching the book and uh, I was able to go to my favourite cities to see some of the greatest buildings in the world. And when we talk about the history of the church, as you have in the title, I suppose uh, you might think that it's only a single church. Sometimes in Ireland, when they say the church, they just mean the Catholic church. But actually, when you say the church, you mean it in a very different way. A very broad way. It's uh, the church, uh, including, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, the Orthodox Church, um, the Russian Orthodox Church, Uh, the Anglican Church, some of the major churches in the world. So let's explore some of the questions that you try to ask and answer in this book. For example, what gives architecture meaning or what gives these buildings meaning? There are different things that can give meaning to buildings. Uh, The site, what happened there, uh, the materials that the uh, building is made from, um, the... Uh, associations 
of the building, the shape of the building, the um, iconography of the decoration. Uh, for example, if you took Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, uh, it was built to replace the original Hagia Sophia that uh, Constantine the Great founded when Constantinople was first founded by him. And uh, what had happened was there was a riot in Constantinople under Justinian the First in 532, and uh, the rioters burnt down a good deal of the city, including Hagia Sophia and part of the Sacred Palace. Uh, and the big question that that uh, brought up in the minds of many people was: Had God uh, deserted? Justinian, because Justinian ruled as the emperors did rule, um, as the elect of God. Now, if there's a big question, you've got to answer it with a big answer. And he decided that he had to replace Hagia Sophia with the greatest building in the world. And he drew on resources that no other man had access to, that is, colored marbles from all different parts of the empire. And he had these brought to Constantinople to decorate Hagia Sophia so that you could see that the whole of the geography of uh, the empire was built into this building. And the structure of the building was revolutionary. And Procopius, his official historian, makes a point of saying that when the architect ran out of ideas on how to make this structure work, that Justinian, um, he did not know how, but probably by the grace of God uh, and inspiration uh, by God, uh, he would solve the uh, problem himself. So he was the greatest and wisest man in the world demonstrated by this fantastic building that Procopius says in his book on the buildings, uh, he says that um, if the Christians had been asked and been shown a model of what could be built to replace the uh, building by Constantine the Great, uh, if they could be shown a model of what was possible under Justinian, they would have said to tear it down right away and build this new wonderful building. So uh, it was presented as providential that uh, the building was burnt in the riot and uh, that Justinian demonstrated that he was the greatest man in the world by rebuilding uh, this um fantastic new structure uh, in just over five years when it had taken um, decades to build the original Hagia Sophia. And it's fascinating the way you've been almost a building detective, that you've looked at a building and that you've been able to gain all of these insights about the kind of church it was as an institution. You're able to get a sense of the people 
you're able to get a sense even of the theological beliefs and and it's all from studying that architecture the changes what they were trying to do if you think of what archaeologists do and they scratch ground in the ground to recover um, minute bits of evidence well buildings are uh, standing archaeology or standing history and you can uh, from the building itself and of course the uh, associated literature you can uh, discover tremendous things about the people who built and the people who used those buildings why did they make them in that shape why did they arrange themselves in a particular way uh, within the rooms why were the roots organized like that uh, as in the sacred palace in constantinople there were routes through the palace that the emperor would take uh, to meet different people in a different sequence um, in the ceremonial to uh, enact the um, and embody uh, the rule of the empire and that 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 rule reflected God's rule of the universe. Very good. Do you have a particular favourite in terms of of the ones you visited? Because it really was a, a global trek that you went on, and I know your son was there for some of it, and that you were uh, have it getting up to all these adventures where you're uh, in exploring different churches. Was there one that had a particularly powerful message for you? Particularly powerful message. Well, it, curiously. Uh, one of the most striking examples was a parish church just near um, Oxford uh, where Chaucer's granddaughter founded what was called the Foundation of God's House, uh, where uh, there was a school for the local children and um, almshouses for the local poor and a chantry for her family. And the almsmen were employed to pray members of her family through purgatory. And it still functions, uh, God's house still functions in its original form, other than the chantry, of course. Um, but there are still children at the local parish school and still almsmen in the almshouses and the parish church functions as the parish church all together in the centre of this tiny village in uh, the Oxfordshire countryside. Very good. Well, Alan, congratulations on the book. It's called A History of the Church Through Its Buildings. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. Costs about €35, the author, Alan Doig. And Alan, thanks so much for joining us. I was delighted to. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In June 1701, a young widow wakes up in a hotel room in Paris and finds a man in her bed. 
Within hours they are married, yet three weeks later the bride flees to London and swears that she had never agreed to the wedding, and so begins an intriguing story of madness, tragic passion and the curse of inheritance. The book is called Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies, A Story of Property, Marriage and Madness. It's published in hardback by One World Publications and costs £20 sterling, so about €24. Euro. The author is Leo Hollis and Leo, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. There's so much going on in the book and, you know, the first part, I suppose, is that incredible story of these conflicting accounts of, of what was going on uh, with this marriage. Was it a case of, of a conspiracy? Uh, was it madness? You know, wh- what exactly was going on? But then it's also a story about London itself because what Mary owned her inheritance was some of the most valuable real estate in the world. And this is really also about how, in a way, the super rich came to own London. That's exactly right. I mean, you tell it so incredibly well. Um, It's really um, about um, a woman that most people have never heard of, Mary Davies, um, who inherited a plot of land when she was a baby. Her father died in the Great Plague of 1665, and she becomes uh, an incredibly wealthy heiress. So from a very, very early age, she was almost instantly put onto the marriage market. And she becomes, in some ways, a commodity as much as her land becomes a property. Um, and it's the story about how her, her life develops, that she's never able to escape um, uh, this property and its fortunes. Um, people are always looking for ways to manipulate her. Um, and it culminates, as you were sort of saying earlier, in this uh, potential forced marriage um, or, or, or even a kind of, sort of uh, marriage plot and conspiracy, which involves poisoning and um, bleeding and and also um, uh, drugging um, and the, the 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 culmination of that uh, kind of that event in um, a, a Paris hotel is a court case which happens in 1703 which like all of the great court cases is the most stunning drama um, as as lawyers and witnesses try and unpack and recall what happened in that hotel room. And I don't want to give away all of the twists and turns because I think our listeners will enjoy uh will enjoy reading the book. But there's a lot going on here in terms of London itself though, and the development of London into a, a big modern city and because Private property is, is, is important to that. And in, in this era of, of so much happening in, in London, it's also very important in terms of the planning that's going on. Absolutely. Um, I mean, London in the middle of the 17th century was, was pretty down at heel. It was, it was uh, almost uh, uh, you know, dilapidated. Um, and the fire comes along and um, the plague the year before. Uh, and this is in some ways creates a, a, a set of conditions which within a generation means that London becomes the most popular, um, um, populous, um, uh, and uh, probably the largest city uh, in the world, um, and certainly a sort of a centre of, of capitalism, of empire, uh, as well as a kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of culture as well, culture and science. And this happens within a span of 30 or 40 years. Uh, my argument in, in, in this book is that uh, one of the threads that run through this sort of uh, this birth of modern Britain the, and one that has been overlooked is, is the question of land and how um, uh, the, uh, the rise of private property 
the way that the courts and um, uh, the legal system uh, sort of organizes private property and and uh, the the financial um, uh, aspects of that really are at the heart of why London has become uh, or became at that time uh, so sort of central and and also why it still continues to be um, uh, a place that sort of seems to attract to the sort of super rich um, uh, and has become this kind of sort of hypercharged world city. And also it shows the lengths that people were prepared to go to try and 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 get control of some of that and, and cut their way into uh in, into that world and and go to pretty much any length. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the, the English legal system is essentially based upon on, on, on uh, land law. But but as you know, any any lover of literature will know, you know, inheritance and uh, the, the the wars over inheritance are, are some of the richest dramas that, uh, that that the sort of the human story can can uh, uh, can reveal. Um, uh, you know, sort of great novels have been written about inheritance, and hopefully, my story is, is is a way of thinking about that and unpacking that as a as a, as a sort of historical story. Because so often we consider things like private property and land to be something that has been handed down for generations over the centuries, but actually, it's very modern. Um, you know the way that we think about the ground beneath our feet, um, how we trade, and um, how we think about the future through land, is is a really, really kind of new um, sort of phenomena, and it means that, that that we can also think about ways to transform that. Which is very interesting because you also work on the future of cities, and in a way, even though this is a book about the past and you're reclaiming the history of this of this woman who had such a tragic life story, you're also thinking these big questions about uh, the future and where we should go. I, I, I hope so. I mean, uh, I had started out sort of researching a book about. Um, who owns London today? Um, and uh, that I found sort of, uh, you know, incredibly revealing. But in, in many ways, the sort of story of Mary Davies started almost as a sort of footnote to that. But it became so I became so fascinated in it, not only in you know, working out who she was um, and working out what her story uh, really was, but but also what it means and, uh, you know, how it speaks over the centuries down to us. And so, yeah, it, 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 learning and thinking about sort of Mary's example does allow us to think about, you know, not just uh, her own estate. So, uh, you know, the, the, the land that uh, she inherited has become some of the richest land and the most valuable land in the world. It's sort of Mayfair, Belgravia uh, and Pimlico. So that whole area around sort of Buckingham Palace. Um, and uh, has been some of the richest land for hundreds of years. Um, so it, it it does allow you to sort of think afresh about the housing issues that we have today. Uh, you know, the um, uh, even as sort of as as, as as recent as the sort of uh, the credit crunch um, and the way that we sort of treat land. Um, you know, there's this uh, uh, lots of debates going on at the moment about house values and uh, the rise of land as a result of uh, COVID and the way that people are moving and, uh, you know, looking for new ways of of living. And uh, that might potentially change the ways that we live in cities. Uh, So, uh, again, it comes down to this question of land. And and the interesting thing is we just never talk about it. 
It's, we talk about bricks and we talk about mortar. We don't talk about the ground beneath our feet. And actually, as Mark Twain uh, sort of said uh, uh, humorously, but I think he sort of said it with uh, great reason, um, by land, no one else is making any more of it. Very good. Well, it's a fascinating story. It's called Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies, A Story of Property, Marriage and Madness. The book is published in hardback by One World Publication, costs about €24. The author, Leo Hollis. And Leo, thanks a million uh, for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cahill, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week for the August Bank Holiday Weekend, we'll be playing you back our show on the great explorer Shackleton. And then in two weeks' time, we'll be finding out about the life and work of Mary Wollstonecraft and how the Neolithic Revolution transformed our world. All that and lots more in our August book show. So join us next week and the week after on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history on News Talk.